Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Robin Williams season. This is a collection of shorter analysis shows based around four films starring the late great Robin Williams. They're by no means his best. For that, go to our Aladdin and Goodwill Hunting shows. But they certainly make for some engaging conversation. Coming up, we have One Hour Photo, Licensed to Wed, and at the very end, Mrs. Doubtfire. But we start off with Bicentennial Man. This Christmas, witness one robot's extraordinary 200-year journey. He learns and grows all the time. To become... This is an external physical upgrade only. An ordinary man. The secret to all this is imperfection. That's what makes us unique. I like the shape of your head. It's huge. Complete your destiny. From the director of Mrs. Doubtfire comes an epic story. That I saw the inner me. That would bridge the gap between man and machine. Edward, what the hell's going on? I am the proud owner of a central nervous system. You can feel. Will you perform an experiment just for the sake of science? All right. Kiss me. Oh, uh. Okay, so Bicentennial Man is uh, adapted from the Isaac Asimov book, The Positronic Man. A family buy a robot, and then, oh, it's difficult to get used to a robot being in the house. Sam Neill's the dad, and uh, it feels really, like, really like AI. And it came out a few years before AI, but it feels like it's copying AI, which is and weird. it's nowhere near as good as AI. And yeah, it's nowhere near as good as AI. So the robot it has all of these quirks and seems to want to... Uh, Isn't Robin Williams in AI? Yes, he's the genie he type. The, um, the information. Mr. Know-it-all type guy. Uh, kiosk person. Yeah. That, it feels like that's the role he should have in this film. Yeah. Uh, but so not be the robot. Yeah, he doesn't actually feel right as the innocent child. Well, yeah, he's a quirky, innocent child who, for some reason, doesn't seem to understand basic things. Like, uh, it, it, you know, it, he doesn't understand banter and, and household chat and like, good night, good night, good night, good night. Like, he he doesn't... I think they explain this away with all well, he's defective as a, uh, but it seems like a lot of robots should have the software to the, be able to un- like if you're yeah. a, a house butler type robot, you can understand talking to people. If you're mm. programmed to to have conversations, you understand what good night means. Here's the thing: if you look at the difference between PCs as they used to exist before they were even really called PCs, they went out as purely mechanical units that you then had to either program or load in Jesus. program materials Basic to make them do anything. Basic empty operating systems. Yeah, absolutely. You got a, a, a BBC or something like that, it did nothing until you told it what to do. That's the format he seems to have. Because it was written by Asimov back then. Exactly. 
These days, the idea of sending out a hardware unit without even Windows installed, you just wouldn't do it. You get, you get a, a PC these days and it does all the basic things that you would need it to do. You, unless you've specifically gone for a Linux machine, you don't have to program it yourself. Yet the whole first part of this film is them is teaching them this damn robot Andrew how to robot. How to do the things that he needs to do. It's kind of like if you had a PlayStation 4 and you were like, start PlayStation 4, and the PlayStation 4 said, start what, sir? And you're like, a, a game? Oh, a game. What would you like to play? Catch? No, the game I just put in you. And it's like, oh, aren't you quirky and fun? Seriously, back to the factory. Yeah. Which, by the way, is a Terminator factory. <laughs> There's these terrifying, like, Terminator heads being made. Mm. And also, like, this is going to mean nothing to Americans and Brits younger than a certain age. But this felt like Crichton the movie yes. for me. <laughs> yes! Oh my god, yes. I'm amazed that box didn't have three spare heads in it. <laughs> I arcat him, ordering his own heads around. You bugger. <laughs> and you know that Robin Williams would have provided those hilarious yes. voices. Yes, he would. Okay, so but it's Chris Columbus. And there's two things wrong with Chris Columbus for this particular project. One... Chris Columbus adores Robin Williams, and Robin Williams can do no wrong in the eyes of Chris Columbus. He's not going to tell Robin to draw it in. He just finds Robin Williams hugely entertaining, whichever uh, mode Williams goes into. The other thing is, Chris Columbus doesn't understand really how to manage tone, especially with Robin Williams involved. So it's creepy and fun on a seesaw, and it keeps going backwards and forwards, and it's always slightly too creepy for it to really feel fun. And yet it's too silly to be satisfyingly creepy, mm. if that also, makes sense. Also, this may be largely due to Chris Columbus's incapability of handling philosophy, but this is trying to be a philosophical film, and the philosophy in it is so basic... Yeah, it's cod. ...as to be... I don't want to say not worth the effort, because any attempt to understand philosophy is worth the effort, mm. but it just seems like you could have reached more complex conclusions than this. Well, I mean, it's good for children, but children would be far better served with something like Wally. Yes. Which obviously came later. Yes, they would. But yeah, just in terms of a robot that has a personality, Wally is infinitely superior to this. Mm, yeah. And also a robot that feels lonely and wants connection. Mm. Yeah. Well, the, the, the fundamental... As is AI, by the way. The fundamental bedrock of what the philosophy is debating is not a million miles from, say, Westworld. And I had a discussion with somebody about this on, on Twitter the other day, that what bugs me about the repetitive need to produce... The same media, entertainment that asks that the same question. explores this philosophical theory of, well, if we create a robot that's capable of, of free will and independent thought... Is it really capable of independent will, uh, independent thought and free will? And does that mean that it has a sense of humanity? And they keep sort of talking around that same point. And it takes them this entire film to work out whether or not the robot has human. The robot is fucking human. Just he's shaped like a human. He acts like a naive human, but a human. If... He if creates, are, he builds cuckoo clocks. Yeah, we, the, the bottom line is, if we are creating robots that look human and behave as we would want a human to behave, and then we argue for the right to treat them as anything other than human, then it's not the robot's humanity that's in question, it is ours. Which is why that line in Blade Runner where uh, uh, Rachel asks Deckard after she's feeling really dejected, that test of yours, do you ever take it yourself? And she says it... 
And in the script, the meaning is, you know what, you as a human being, I find you somewhat inhuman. And that's a really good point. I mean, the fact that the Blade Runner mythology ran with that went, oh, does this mean Deckard's a replicant? No, 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 you're being way too literal. Mm. The point is here, what humanity is in Deckard? Is that being crushed by the civilization that's around him? Exactly. Is it in they fact, are asking him to behave as less than human. Especially as the greatest act of humanity in the film comes from a replicant. Exactly, yeah. Like, if you want to treat things badly, then... Making them incredibly human-like says something quite terrible about you. Why was I programmed to feel pain? Exactly, yeah. And like I said, Westworld does it a lot better. But also, like, this robot's dreadfully inappropriate. Like, he he starts to learn humour, and he comes out and does a bunch of Robin Williams-style really, really fast jokes with that where he, like, he runs from the punchline through to the, the next one, and they're all, like tits jokes and genital jokes he's saying this to children and then what like one of them's this really nasty like you know what do you call a brunette between two blondes translator and it's like oh you're saying because the blondes are stupid okay so that's that's a joke from the fucking 70s cheers for that one did asimov write that do you like blonde jokes no. Being blonde and all. No, I am I'm very much not a fan of smartest woman I know ladies and gentlemen so The overarching plot of this, he's called Bicentennial Man because he effectively lives to 200 years. His original family grows up, grows old, and the little girl that he grew an attachment to grows into an old woman and eventually dies. She's played by Anne Beth Davids. Her granddaughter, also played by Anne Beth Davids, develops a relationship with the now far more human-looking android version of Andrew, Andrew the android, uh, who has sort of transcended his silicon body for something that is a lot more what he feels fits in with the people around him. And because it's Chris Columbus, this infatuation comes off as unintentionally unsettling. This is like twilight levels of, as in twilight breaking dawn levels of, oh, I remember you from when you were a little girl, and then we had sex. Yeah. Right. I am even a little bit bothered. No, no, even worse. I remember you from when your grandmother was a little girl. She grew up to look exactly like you. And then we had sex. Even before you get to the whole, this is my granddaughter and she looks exactly like me. This is back when Andrew is still a metal man. Mm -hmm. When M. Beth Davids is is little Grace grown up and is on the verge of getting married. But she's effectively saying, I'm not sure if I should marry Frank because I have feelings for you. Even if you take away the fact that he's a robot, she's effectively effectively been brought up with this guy as her brother or a fun uncle. He's a member of her family. That's the thing. That's not how romantic attachment works. The story of a robot who falls in love with a woman needs to be a robot who falls in love with a woman. Not a woman who began as a child and spake as a child and grew up to really get the hots for this robot butler who's also kind of the uncle in their family I do appreciate the Back to the Future makeup in this when they have to age up Embeth Davids twice as both uh, the original Little Miss and then her granddaughter who gets older and older as he knows her it's it's facial prosthetics and uh, now that we're in the realm of having an old lady with Hayley Atwell's mouth chroma keyed in the middle of her face that is never not going to make uh, Winter Soldier ever so slightly imperfect it's, it's for me it's one floor yeah that was 
a bad idea, guys. Sorry, Russo brothers. And it's going to happen more and more. We're going to see like entire like image movers digital CGI creations that look like an old version of that person. They'll always feel uncanny. Mm. There's no substitute for me that for an actor wearing aged up makeup. It worked for Citizen Kane. It worked for Back to the Future. Mm. We can see the actor behind there. We get that they're still young. We'll go with it. Okay, you gotta have some faith. Work on the makeup process. Make it as good as it can be, and the the actor will do the rest. Mm, yeah. And the script and the and the director. You can't you can't outthink this one, John. You have to feel it. Andrew lives on for years and years. He starts his own business on a house on the beach. He goes off wandering in search of other robots of his model who might also become self aware. While the world carries on, no other robots appear to be self aware. He meets one he thinks might be thinking for herself. Her name's Galatea. She's been created by Oliver Platt, but she's just kind of a sex bot for him. He's a robot specialist who lives on his own. And Andrew strikes up a friendship with him and ends up getting his entire body upgraded. There was a scene that actually made you well up where he talked about wanting to come, wanting to have an orgasm, where he was talking about you humans get to sit in the bed together and go to heaven, albeit briefly, and then you get to come back. In my defence, it was specifically... I'm not saying you shouldn't have. I'm like that... It instilled in us two very different reactions. Me, I was going, okay, I get that, but oh, God. It's the the context of it, yes, is very creepy and weird. And, and I didn't like the fact that Sam Neill was teaching him about sex in the early part oh, of the film. Oh, God, yeah. Anyway, that was, he was really... like, what is it like to be human? And he's like, what? well, what? first off, let me tell you about the boobies. That? He's at this stage, he's a robot, he's a metal. The uh, mechanical object. I know you want to try and educate him, but why would you start with literally the one thing he's never going to need, as far as you're concerned? <laughs> ah, but you it... don't know that 150 years down the line he's going to get this upgrade to a body that works. Why are you teaching him the one thing he's never going to need? It makes no sense to him. You wouldn't try and teach that to an 18-month-old child. You do it in stages, Sam Neil. What are you playing at? Yeah. This movie has a tone problem. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> but what got to me about that scene much, much later on, when he actually looks like Robin Williams and not like a metal humanoid, was the concept of wanting to touch eternity and him wanting to go beyond his own uh, concept and, and beyond his own self boundary and sex is ultimately one of the ways that you can do that it's a very fleeting way that you can do that there are other ways that last a little bit longer but the uh, maker in transmetropolitan for example is a drug addict well yes indeed also drugs but not that's not one that i'd recommend but here's the thing andrew's already an artist yeah even just the the experience that he has making the clocks he's described as as what um Dan Floyd talked about flow. Honestly, I don't deny him the orgasm. I just kind of wish I wasn't watching that film and that actor describe it in that way. Mm. Like, in principle, I'm fine with robots coming. Well, well, the other thing about that scene is that he's having this conversation with Oliver Platt, who then goes all teary-eyed himself and says, says, I wish I could could do that too. With a giant robot woman. that's, That's an ideal point for them both to go... Shall we? <laughs> oh my god! 
Oh I mean, it's God. not going to happen, but, you know. I mean, oh, 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 ha, oh, thank you for giving me this giant metal cock out of a plant. I mean, come on. You, okay, you're, you're an inventor, Oliver Platt. You're a creator. Do you, you mean to tell me you don't test your own work? Okay. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew finally gets together with Portia, the granddaughter of the little girl who was there at his unboxing video. And they spend many decades together in basically a natural husband and wife relationship. So Andrew goes to the Human High Council and pleads to be declared human. He uh, asks to be uh, um, considered a man. And <laughs> there's this stuffy old guy with white mutton chops who goes, No, we couldn't allow you to be a human being because of how envious people will be. If we allow robots to be considered human, everyone will be envious of them. And it's like, you guys really don't grasp capitalism. It's not the point that they're making, because otherwise they'd have made that point. Mm. We live in a society of the haves and have-nots, with the ludicrously rich at the top that everyone beneath is envious of. Unless you consider that to be a terrible lifestyle and actually you're happy enough with who you are, in which case, well done. You've found the secret to life and it's brilliant. But to everyone else, you're like, fucking rich motherfucker! There's envy throughout society. Capitalism is fueled by envy. Mm -hmm. How dare you suggest robots can't be humans because people will envy them. And specifically... As in, like, specifically because they'll live forever. And that made me think, do you have an iPhone that's lived forever? Do you have a PlayStation that's lived forever? Do you have a PC that's lived forever? I asked Sharon, is there one mechanical thing that just seems to live forever? And we both said at the same time, Big Ben. The clock tower in London, that needs to be constantly maintained. That had, There's a reason for that to be kept alive. I'm sure there's a couple of other mechanical marvels out there. But the average computer lives for a while, becomes outmoded, and dies. The assumption is, from humans, that robots, given the chance to be allowed to maintain themselves, will live forever. This is obviously Asimov's positing, saying that they'll just give themselves new bodies and they'll just upgrade themselves the whole time. But which humans do that anyway? Yes. <gasps> but eventually, whether they can live forever or not, like what, what he really means is... Humans would be scared that the robot race will outlive them. That's what really needs to be laid down. Not, oh, it's, we're envious. But that, like, it needs to be, oh, they'll be too envious, crack, and then send them away. And then Robin Williams' robot needs to walk away and then talk to Oliver Platt and say, it's not just that you're envious, you're worried we'll outlive you. And just the idea that, you know, at some point in the future, robots will rule the world. Yeah. And that's what AI does, because it's a better the, film. Exactly, it's an underrated Spielberg Classic. That's the generational resentment of the parent for the child because they know that the child will have will go forward and they will not, which is fear of their own mortality. But ultimately, all Andrew is asking them for is legal recognition of his humanity. These people can't grant him a soul. Yeah. And then some 30 or so years later, when uh, Portia is very old and moribund, and he is now very old, because that's the thing. He just asked for, uh, you know, the, the right to be human. His body's still ageing. Mm. Oh, no, no, no. He does that on purpose. All right. He has himself infused with human blood so that it will start to deteriorate and degrade his system so that he will age. I'm and sorry, then, little girl. I need the blood. And then he goes back to them and says, OK, I've done this. I'm ageing I'm now. old as fuck now. Your previous logical argument doesn't stand. What do you think now? And he asks the new head of the Human High Council, Lynn Thigpen, who I was like, oh, my God, it's the DJ from The Warriors. 
And it's kind of wonderful to see her. She died not long after this. And it's fantastic to see this old mutton-chopped white guy replaced after a few decades with an old black woman who goes, yeah, all right. And, and he's granted being human. She doesn't go, oh, yeah, all right. She says, well, think about it. And then just as he's on life support, like, like giving his last breaths, he is declared a human. Mm-hmm. And then his, his wife uh, asks to be turned off by the now human Galatea. Well, the now humanoid Galatea robot. Mm. Questions and uh, qualms, queebs with this particular scenario, though. Galatea is still very young here. Like, she's clearly only just kind of transitioned to being human. There's a question mark regarding whether she's going to be an immortal robot or not an immortal robot. And the other thing is, this suggests that other robots are learning from Andrew's example. That's a whole, like... That's Act Three. That's the whole third act, like a Honey, bunch that's of other the prequel to the Matrix. Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole film of other robots coming to him and going. They say you ought to be human, and that concept being bandied around beyond just Portia and Oliver Platt. It, there's there's whole movies within the premise of this movie which would have been better than just this movie with its very narrow focus on can the humans please say I'm a real live boy, mm. which ironically. Is AI is the focus of AI? Yeah, but AI but again, has a lot more going on beneath the hood. It's the same question, and it's the same reason that I get wound up when they make this philosophical debate in films about clones. But but are they really human? Yes. yes next question. But but are they really human? Yes. Okay, you don't need an entire film for this. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Ugh. the score for uh, um, Bicentennial Man, which came out in 1999, was James Horner now dearly departed and he went out of his way to make it feel like Titanic at many many points and it, it's one of the best parts of the movie is James Horner's score and it ends on fucking Celine Dion I mean if that, that is shameless it's a song called You Look At Me it's nowhere near as good as My Heart Will Go On which in, back in the day actually annoyed me but now I really quite like as a song even though it is overblown and deliberately tries to make you cry it's shameless and Chris Columbus was not the guy to direct this at the time, Stanley Kubrick was still alive. I'd have preferred him to make this instead, so you could have that, and Spielberg's take on it would be AI. Would be AI so like yeah. a, a duology. Yeah. And instead of making fucking Eyes Wide Shut, which is the worst film Stanley Kubrick ever made, there I said it. So I mean, Kubrick is very cold, and I usually don't like his stuff for that reason. Oh, good but point, yeah. I actually think it would potentially have worked in this. Well, it's very cerebral, and obviously the um, these are two different sides of the seesaw because Chris Columbus is way too syrupy mm. and can't do the philosophy right and Kubrick is way too cold and can't do the, the human emotion right. right. So someone in the middle is saying, yep, Steven Spielberg. Hmm. Yeah, certainly was then. One-hour photo. Someone seems sad. They don't have any friends. That makes me feel bad for them. Who is that and doesn't have any friends? Sai. The photo guy at the one-hour place? We really don't know that much about him, you know? 
Manny's sick. I mean, he might even have a lot of friends. Listen to the music. He's evil. He probably has a girlfriend and, and a mommy and a daddy who love him. I don't think he does. I've been doing mini lab work for over 20 years now. I consider it an important job. You're a very lucky man, Mr. Jorkin. You have a wonderful family. And if you don't mind my saying so, a very beautiful house, too. I'm sorry? Okay, one hour photo. I feel this is going to be the one we talk about the least, and it's ironic because it's the best of these four. I was really surprised by this. I, I remember thinking, you know, I, I didn't see it t- since 2002, and I remember thinking back to it and going, oh, yeah, Robin Williams is a glassy-eyed creep, and I conflated it with um, Insomnia, which came out at about the same time, and I thought, well, yeah, Robin Williams playing cold psychopathic, but again, it was just following the 90s when Robin Williams had been doing all of this, uh, you know, family-friendly stuff, and I was like, well, he's branching out from that. slalom in the other direction. Yeah, and I... I think the fact that he's now gone really made me appreciate the tragedy of this particular performance. Uh, the premise is uh, he is a man who works at the one-hour photo place in a Walmart. It's, it's like a, a Walmart-like It's a Target-type place. place. Yeah. And uh, he has uh, a particular affection for a mum and her, like, eight-year-old son who uh, come in often to get their photos developed. So already, like, your brain is going back to 2002 and going, oh, do you remember when photos used to be developed? It's kind of it makes this film special because it's an artifact. The idea of taking your photos to be developed, you can still do that at mm. Boots in this country. These days, it would be more likely that you would digitally upload them online yep. and have them sent to you. You go in with your phone, you plug it into one of the kiosks, you select the photos you want printing out, yeah. and then they spit them out for you there and then. Or you can ask for them to be posted. But as it would appear in this particular place, the each and every one of your photos gets looked at and graded, colour graded and, and adjusted by the person man in the kiosk, which I thought I never realised quite how much that must happen and and he clearly takes a lot of pride in his work uh, and points out that his machine he later points out that his machine is uh, you know the best is calibrated better than anyone else in the in the uh, in the area mm. although i do get the impression that he takes a lot more care and attention over them than anybody else would yeah. and it is possible just to press a button and have the machine have spit them, them out spat out yeah and he he expresses derision of uh, companies that just do that so automatically you're with him this is it's a it's a thriller, but it could be you're with the family, and there's this creepy guy at the uh, uh, target who keeps creeping onto them. Mm. But you're with him. There's a voyeuristic, illicit, and at the same time very creepy and uncomfortable sense of being too close to this very lonely man. Mm. He is. I mean, he is too intense. And although you're with him in the sense that you're seeing his side of the story, yeah. he is not presented as immediately sympathetic yeah, no. there's not a lot of warmth around him do you know what it really made me feel like Manhunter yeah I was thinking of Dollarhide mm, yeah. which automatically this makes you think of other films where you've seen psychopaths and you think oh god what's he going to be capable of and this is an R Williams plays it meticulous kind of finicky you, there's moments when he's very warm and you know that it's coming from a, a genuine place but it's always ever so slightly off like he gives the boy a uh, like he takes off the rack a uh, disposable camera just gives it to the boy 
and says, you know, that's that's for your birthday. And then later on asks him, you know, do you like this action figure? Because the boy's cradling it. And then he later buys it for the kid who goes, oh, I can't accept this. And it's just, it's strange behavior because he doesn't really know how people work. Mm. And I was thinking, oh, he's very meticulous, but he must, you know, have paid for that um, disposable camera with his own money. You know, just to make sure that it doesn't end up missing off the system. But later on, he gets hauled over the coals for far too many photos of going going missing and going through the cracks. So he's not that meticulous. No. He's meticulous in how he puts the photos together, but he doesn't cover his trail. Mm, yeah. And, and in part, I think that's because there are parts of his cognitive function that are operating like a child. Yeah. It doesn't occur to him to cover those things because he doesn't think of them as being things he's doing wrong. And he takes his lunch alone in the uh, staff room and he's just sort of staring, staring, staring with a little smile on his face. And then you see it's the mum with the child and the husband there as well. And he, he covets, much like Dollarhide. He mm. covets what he can't have. Yeah. And it's this warm family. And then he goes home to his little... It's actually quite big and spacious, but it's a very cold-looking apartment. It's very sparse. It looks more like a studio mm. than an apartment, a photography studio. And... Then, you know, he sits down and you see his wall is covered in photos and the photos are all of this one family and they go back to when the mother was expecting the child. Mm. And it's just this very quiet, very creeping sense of, oh, God, no. You're left in no doubt that this man is is broken. You're automatically inclined to go into kind of emergency mode wherein you hope nothing terrible too terrible happens but it feels like we're pushing towards something big now he hangs around outside their house while they've gone and he creeps inside puts on their clothes watches their tv pets their dog does he eat their food uh, I think he gets a beer out of the fridge. Or he something. certainly takes a shit in their toilet. Yeah. But it's, again, it's this kind of awkwardly hilarious moment where, like, oh, Robin Williams just sitting there on the toilet, proudly shitting, pants around his ankles. Then they come home and he's like, oh my God. And then they're about to see him. And then he wakes up in his car where he has been fantasizing about that. So in his wildest dreams, he took a shit in someone else's toilet. Well, no, they, they come home and very specifically they see him. Yeah. They oh, yeah. acknowledge him and they look him and they say, is, oh, oh, I thought you were going out today and hey, Uncle they si. act as though he is actually part, part of, of their, their family. family so in his wildest dreams he is of course yeah. part of their family uh, a, a fun uncle who gets to live with them and shit in their toilet he mentions at the beginning that sex photographs uh, are, you know happen quite often within his um uh, profession and they have to report kitty porn but um just regular sex pictures of you know you just give them back to the shifty people including dean pelton from uh, community who had hair back then it also puts a slightly odd slant on that scene in parenthood when uh, oh, yeah. plimpton picks i up think this one photos. is my favorite and it just made me think so the guy at the kiosk who obviously knows both of them and will recognise that they both have the same name could still, even if he hadn't given the wrong packet to uh, her mum, could I still go... I did it on purpose. Mm, I think yeah. he did the switcheroo, much yeah. like Cy does himself because he finds out the dad's having an affair and he's like, fuck this. And it had shades of a film that We Hate Movie covered years ago called Hyder in the House, wherein Gary Busey... Sneaks into a house before a family moves in, just because he's a hobo uh, with a terrible past. And uh, then the family moves in, but he takes a shine to them and kind of, like, you know, watches them through the floorboards, hangs around their house taking showers and sitting on their couch when they're out. And it's it's got shades of that, mm. this, this tragic man who, who takes things too far. Mm, yeah. 
Also reminded me of uh, William H. Macy's character in Magnolia. I have so much love to give. I just don't know where to put it. Yeah, because Psy ultimately comes from the same origin point, a, a family who... Don't have... give too much away. Okay. Right, this is actually one that we're going to suggest you folks see. We're not going to tell you the end in this case because it's actually a really good, powerful ending. But continue mm. with well, what you I, can say. Just this theme throughout all of those characters of having a background with a family who is not supportive and not caring for you and going out to seek that in life but not having the tools to be able to do that. And one of the things that impressed me the most about this is it really demonstrated what William's range was. That's why we're doing this whole show, the the, the range on this man. Absolutely. I mean, his, his portrayal of somebody who is who feels emotions to a very, very great extent, but is very selective about what they let through and will sometimes present themselves in a very staged way. Now, I mean, that all ties in with something that I'm reading a lot about at the moment. So obviously that's going to be an interesting focal point for me anyway. But how this is put across in the film as well is very subtle. It's a very understated film. Mm. And honestly, when you said about it being an R, there is one scene in the whole film that really made me go, wow, did they need that? And honestly, I wonder now if they put that in to make sure it got an R because the content is definitely not suitable for children. Yeah. But what what you see, what is shown, you probably could get away with if not for that one scene. But that's the, the crux point of the film. Mm. It's not just about Robin Williams' performance as well. The way the film is shot, there are some very well done filming styles I don't even know what term to use that that Romanek puts in there like the fact that every time Sai leaves the store there is a different colour grade in the atmosphere there's Mm -hmm. there's one scene where he comes out and because all of the floodlights are on everything looks green there's one scene where he comes out and the sun's setting and everything looks kind of orangey Uh, there's uh, one where he comes out and everything looks very blue and Given what you've all, what you see him talk about in terms of adjusting the color balance on the photo machine, what that gives you the impression of is that you are learning about his his life and his emotional state in layers, like you do with a traditionally developed photograph. You're putting different layers of color on, and gradually that builds up to more and more and more of an accurate picture. And there's there's other sort of little visual nods in there, like the fact that very early on he goes outside and somebody's broken his windscreen. It's not a massive smash, it's just a crack that goes all the way down the front over the driver's side. So he will be looking through a crack and he obviously can't afford to have that replaced. So it sits there for the rest of the film. So then you're getting the impression that he sees the world through a distorted window. And he won't go and repair very important breakages, which you need to do. Absolutely. You can't drive safely with a massive crack down the front. He himself is fractured and is driving unsafely. Exactly. Uh, Mark Romanek, who directed this, uh, background in music videos, he directed uh, Linkin Park's Faint, Johnny Cash, Hurt, specifically Hurt, maybe the best cover version of any song of all time. 
and an absolutely haunting, amazing music video. He's directed One Hour Photo and Never Let Me Go and very little else in terms of full feature films. He could have done Bicentennial, man. Like, Mark Romanek not directing films is a loss to the world. And fucking Michael Bay's doing one every time he wants. He also started on music videos. And what's the betting Mark Romanek could do them cheap? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, Never Let Me Go. I, it's not a film that I want to sit down and watch regularly, but I love it. It incredibly is incredibly well put together and, and the emotional punch that you get from it is huge, in spite of the fact that visually it's very bleak. Honestly, it's Robin Williams is maybe one of his most transformative roles. Mm-hmm. It is not the least bit family-friendly. It is the opposite of family-friendly. Uh, it's him really challenging himself, and it's... It's not as triumphant by any means as uh, Good Will Hunting, but it is most definitely a standout performance for his mm. career. Yeah, yeah. And if you haven't seen this before and you watch it, keep one thing in your mind as you watch through this in terms of it being about where we choose to look, where we choose to put our attention mm. and why. Also worthy of note in this film, Connie Nelson, who plays a relatable mother... And the film does a switcheroo with you. You think it's really going to be about her and her struggle, but then it sidesteps and it becomes about something else entirely. It's good to be surprised in that way. And I thoroughly recommend this film. So that was the final high before the plunge. This plunge is going to be pretty low, folks. Prepare for license to wed. Someone once said, marriage is bliss. But that someone probably wasn't married. From that first destined meeting... The first time you say, I love you. What? What? Of you. What of you? Next comes the big one. The proposal. I just want to know if you would spend the rest of your life with me. That's where I come in. Reverend Frank. Little Sadie Jones. I'm just going to tie the knot. Ben, what do you do besides little Sadie? Reverend Frank has known the family forever. Before I certify you ready for marriage, you have to pass the marriage preparation course here. This isn't mandatory, right? Let's just say we strongly advise it. In other words, you have no choice. I'm sorry, who are you again? Reverend Frank's my mentor. My little Mensa. Rule number one, no sex until the honeymoon. No sex? That's supposed to happen after you get married. Reverend Frank? He's just a little bit intrusive. He's just observing our relationship right now. Like a voyeur. Frank, it's not like a voyeur. He wiretapped our telephone, didn't he? A little bit, yeah. We first found out about this film with some frustration when we just got into the office and we were absolutely loving watching John Krasinski as Jim. On a side note, if you want to just skip season one, which is only six episodes long, it's just kind of a rehash of the first season, go straight to season two of The American Office. It's really good. We didn't bother watching this film back then, but we did just now. But Krasinski was having difficulty appearing in feature films at the time because he's kind of a lanky dork. His amiable good looks were having to compete with movie stars everywhere. So it made it difficult for Krasinski to crack his way into Hollywood then. He is now, but back then... Because he's coming in on the directorial side. Yeah. He's 
fantastic both behind and in front of the camera in um, A Quiet Place and I also recommend Away We Go with oh yeah that's fantastic which is great and I hold out hope that he will be Marvel's Reed Richards because he's my dream casting along with Emily Blunt Mary Mm. Poppins herself yeah he's married to Emily Blunt lucky bugger lucky bastard anyway and lucky Emily Blunt well yes indeed so Reverend Frank Dorman this sort of genial avuncular uh, um, priest uh, introduces us to Ben and Sadie, which is uh, John Krasinski, and uh, you know, getting the only role he could at this point in Hollywood, which is to basically play not funny Jim uh, in a rom com with an interfering priest. And Sadie, played by Mandy Moore, Rapunzel from Tangled, who is also very funny. So you've got John Krasinski, brilliantly funny. You've got Mandy Moore, funny, great screen presence, excellent actress. And you've got Robin Williams, comedy legend. How can things go wrong? How could this not be funny? Well, well let, us let us tell you how this cannot be funny. Let us let tell me you count the ways. The cautionary tale of license oh. to wed. So meet Ben and Sadie, a young couple who have been together for a while. They go to Sadie's parents' 30th wedding anniversary. Ben is surrounded by people he doesn't really know, and he's kind of nervous. And feels ridiculously intimidated yeah. by, because they're all rich. Specifically, one of her sisters, uh, Christine Taylor, who is Ben Stiller's, was Ben Stiller's wife. She was the uh, lady in Dodgeball and Zoolander. Mm-hmm. Great comedy actress. Doesn't have anything to do in this movie. I don't know why she's there. She's one of the sisters, and she's got this... Guy who was... What's his name? Tad? He used to take baths with her. I want to say Carmichael. Yeah, Carmichael. Say that. Something Uh, like that. uh, He used to take baths with her as a child. And then the dad says, and he used to pretend he was a submarine captain. And and Carmichael goes, ha ha, I got rid of all the pictures. And I'm like... Uh, already we're in really uncomfortable territory. And, like, is that supposed to be funny or uncomfortably funny? Or, or like, what does that say about these characters? Nothing. Moving on. Just after the mum and dad, like, say, oh, we've been married for 30 years. That's great. Ben decides this is the best time to propose to Sadie. And the family are sort of, oh, okay, welcome to the family. So, you know, things are a little bit rocky between them. And and Sadie is very sweet. And she says, you know, I'd I'd get married to you in a potato sack in a wheat field. And you're like, oh, that's lovely. Movie over. That's it. You know, just like all, that was all the conflict. Like, can we just finish now, please? Because I feel like it's going to get bad. It got bad. She then lays down the flimsy premise of this movie with the stipulation that, oh, I've always wanted to get married in this particular church down the street. It's been my fantasy. She insists that they have to go there, and so they have to go and make nice with the Reverend Frank Dorman, an old friend of the family. Why, he's practically like an uncle. Frank starts by going, let me just get my altar boy. What's the name of this kid? I have no idea. Exactly. We'll call him altar boy, shall we? Altar boy checks with the the Reverend in uh, uh, the book, and they go, yes, we're going to serve you in three years' time. They're booked up for three years, and it's like, well, that's crazy. Or three weeks, and it's like, well, that's enough time for a comedy movie. That's enough time to lay on the pressure. And so Sadie goes, yeah, I guess we're getting married in three weeks. And Ben's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I guess that's kind of interesting. And so Robin Williams says, okay, but you have to go on my course. What is this course, Sharon? It's a... uh, Right. He runs pre-marriage courses... And he also marriage rejuvenation courses, which I'm guessing are, are sort of similar. And 
I will say this, this is not unique. Some churches do do this. And the idea is that before you get married, you come and see your priest a bunch of times and he talks to you about what married life is going to be like and you decide if you're actually ready for that or not. So from that perspective, it it happens. It's a little bit old fashioned. I don't know that it's that common these days, but it's a thing. It's a premise for a comedy movie. Um, But Frank is kind of a new age priest. Not sure how that matches up with multi-generational Catholicism, but there you go. He's new age in that when we first meet him, he's teaching a bunch of kids about the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. And he's making jokes about jugs, like mm. why go out for, for milk when you can have jugs at home? And then uh, yeah, talks about the clap and how you'll get it. And like you know, he's being really inappropriate in front of kids, just like he was in Mrs. Doubtfire, just like he was Man. in Bicentennial Man, mm. and just like he was in One Hour Photo, but it's supposed to be inappropriate yeah. in that. In One Hour Photo, the creepiness is intentional, and it matches up. Mm. In all these other films, the director uses the creepiness for comedy, but doesn't know when that creepiness is still there during what's supposed to be heartwarming bits. Yeah. What this progresses into, and here's where I started to have a real problem with this. because Four minutes in. <laughs> Frank's approach to these pre-wedding courses, it gradually emerges is to take people who he considers haven't really got to the emotional core of their relationship adequately and are still at the stage where they're being polite to each other and they're still at the honeymoon stage and they're all sort of lovey-dovey and they haven't really started to engage with each other's true emotional self, okay? So far, so good. That principle, yeah, I am totally with that. He thinks the way to solve this is to put them in a series of escalating, conflicting situations in order to force them to fall apart and build back up again. Okay, there is nothing at any stage to indicate that Frank has any kind of therapeutic training. There is plenty to indicate that he has not, namely the fact that he is approaching this in a terrible fucking way. He got it from wherever Nick Riviera got his medical certificate. Absolutely, there is one stage, and it's towards the end of the movie. So I'm not recommending that you see this one. So I'm going to spoil the shit out of it. But there is one point where he has a conversation with Sadie, Mm -hmm. and he says in a kind of wistful way, "Did you ever think that Ben might not be the only?" And then he breaks off and says. You know no, what? Never mind. And walks away. And I was I wondering what the fuck he was going to say. The twist in this was going to be that he's been in love with her since she was a kid and he's been trying to sabotage them since day one. Because he said, take your honeymoon tickets uh, to go to Jamaica, take a friend. And then and I then it, it hangs like, for a moment. I'll go with you. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. They drop that like a hot rock. That goes nowhere. That is a good premise for Ben getting the wrong end of the stick and thinking he is trying to horn in on her. That's a whole chunk of the movie they could have done, but they don't. I mean, it's stupid. It's a waste of everybody's time. Mm. But it can you can understand why Ben getting the wrong end of the stick might be reflective of character flaw, as opposed to a perfectly normal guy being put through a ridiculous ringer and somehow coming off the bad guy. Absolutely. And and while this is effectively just a really, really bad 
badly thought out, poorly put together rom-com. Lazy as well. Very lazy. But there are some seeds in this that actually made me think, you know what, in the hands, even even with this same (laughs) cast, in the hands of a more competent scriptwriter and director, you could have had something here. There's, There's a point at which they, he, Frank, gets them to have like a role play argument and it actually comes out that Sadie is pretty pissed off with the fact that Ben is really laid back about life. He never makes decisions. He lets her take the lead on everything and that bugs her. She wants him to be, she kind of wishes he was more dynamic. Um, That's why you go to marriage counselling, or at least couples counselling, to clear that shit up before you get married. But go to a professional. Don't let this maniac control your life. That's what these church courses are supposed to be. The, The church, in a lot of ways, is what used to provide therapy for people, or what is now therapy. But for the most part, they did it unprofessionally and badly, and with this overlay of because the big guy in the sky is watching you with a wagging finger. Yeah, there's also a point where they have a conversation about kids and it transpires she wants four, he wants two. And they actually get into quite a bitter it's not an argument exactly, but there's obviously a rift between them over this fact. And I'm like, you've been together for at least six months. You're living together and you're looking at getting married. And this is not a conversation that you've had. You haven't discussed what kind of family setup you want. Which is why the whole you can get married in three years or three weeks is such Take the three years! And here's the thing. The film falls apart the moment Sadie goes, I guess we're getting married in three weeks. Because she never examines, I was so desperate to get married, Mm. I didn't take the time to really get to know what it's like to really explore each other. Mm. She goes along with this ridiculous enforcement. The poster of this film is John Krasinski and her in in bed. They're in bed under the covers, like with their arms crossed going, ugh. Like John Krasinski's looking at us in a kind of gym way. Robin Williams in between them, dressed as a priest, lying on top of the bed, creepy as fuck, and just going, ha ha, I'm stopping these two having sex. Oh, ha. She's looking at us in a kind of ugh, God way, so that women will see the poster and go, oh God, imagine if the priest was trying to stop me having sex. No. But that's not her character in this film. She's the one going along with all of this. So all the shit we're about to lay on you, at no point does she go, this is way too much. How is that relatable for women? And because although you do cut back and forwards between what's going on with Ben and what's going on with Sadie, you never really get Sadie's misgivings about what's happening, except for the bits where she's actively arguing with Ben. She has an issue with the fact that he's so laid back and won't make decisions. And he has an issue with the fact that she is incredibly controlling and rigid about things. But that is never explored except, except, in a tiny throwaway postscript... When it turns out that not only did she take the honeymoon tickets and go to Jamaica, she took her entire fucking family with her, including Carmichael. You know Carmichael, the submarine captain. The moment of kind of revelation and realisation comes not between Ben and Sadie having an honest conversation about how they really feel about each other. Like adults. It comes from Carmichael saying to Sadie... Well, maybe Ben's issue is the fact that you're always coming to me for advice. Maybe it's the fact that you won't rely on him. Maybe you should try relying on him. And she goes, oh my God, you're right. This solves everything. Thank no, you, it God, fucking Michael. doesn't! <laughs> <sighs> oh. 
And I apologise for the fact that only dogs can hear me now. It's fine. But uh, dear God, this film made me cross. It also feels like an office outing, because Mindy Kaling, who plays Kelly, is in this briefly mm-hmm. as She's one... She's the wife of... The wife of Ben's, Ben's friend. Best she friend. gets, like, yeah. one-a-bit scenes. Mm-hmm. Kevin is in this. Angela is in this. They get one-a-bit scenes. Bob Balaban, for no reason, is in this. Ben takes the ring in to get it engraved... And the ring's supposed to say never to part. It says never to fart. The, the length of the scene where Ben is trying to argue that they should just, like, like they shouldn't have done it in the first place. And then can you get it re-engraved? It's half the movie! The fact that Bob Balaban's response to this is, well, we, we get a lot of novelty requests for engravings. No, you don't. No, you don't. And I'll tell you for why. <laughs> because you are an incredibly expensive upmarket. Yeah. upmarket this is not a fucking tattoo looking jewellers. If people want their wedding rings to say never to fart, they take them to the same place they get their dog tags engraved and their keys cut. They don't bring them to you. Side note, by the way, when you write that shit on a form, you also write your phone number when they would ring you and say do you you really want us to say never to fart because it's costing you 250 dollars to get it engraved plus the cost of the ring how fucking dare this joke be in the movie it's such like this couldn't happen and if it does say never to fart the shop would go we are so sorry our engraver is clearly incompetent you should have been phoned we will immediately get this dealt with Are you okay coming in tomorrow morning to pick it up? End of fucking scene. But instead it's this whole fucking to-do in in service of comedy that isn't happening. And then part of the joke is that he can get this fixed. He can get this fixed within 24 hours and they're getting married in two days, so that would be fine. But they tell him it's going to cost an extra $250 for a rush fee. If you could see how much this planned wedding is going to cost, $250 is nothing. It is spit. Drop in the ocean compared to the average American wedding that you are forced to get. Since I am going to go out on a limb and guess that Ben... Because he is not having hyperventilating attacks about how much this wedding is going to cost, is not paying Daddy's for paying any for of it. it because Sadie's dad will be covering the cost. I really think that at this stage he would just go, you know what? Yes, two hundred and fifty quid. Yeah. Here is my credit card. But he can't say that because out. John Krasinski, the man, is forced to say what stupid Ben, the character, mm. would say. And then he doesn't even have it done purely so that they can have a joke at the actual wedding where she realises that the ring still says never to fart. We have... And she tells him not to change it because she thinks it's so awesome and quirky. This is all before, like, Robin Williams really gets his oar in early. Like, he starts off... Aside from Nethergast, he's like, no sex for three weeks. And, and, and there's like, oh, it's just three weeks, no sex. Why is it that not having sex for the three weeks before you get married might actually be a bad idea, Sharon? Because, as I pointed out to you yesterday, getting married and arranging a wedding, especially when you've got to do it in three oh, weeks, God. is insanely stressful. <laughs> And there is a point where Frank says that a lot of couples resort to sex as a quick fix because they're having problems and this will sort things out. Now, long term, I agree with that. But if you have no specific problems when you start the wedding planning... It's just going to create problems. Well, here's the thing. Not if you don't want to, obviously, but having physical intimacy over the course of that incredibly stressful three weeks would go a long way to keeping your relationship stable. It keeps you together for the love of... It's so... 
infantile the way this is laid on us. Like, we're supposed to go, oh, well, that all makes sense. Let's not question that. And Ben's just, like, grumbling about it rather than going, no, no, actually bullshit, no. Also, also, this is an artificial construct so that they can have a comedy bit where John Krasinski tries to pressure her into having sex with him. And he basically goes, can we have sex? And she goes, no. He goes, oh, booby weenie. And like, he's acting all petulant. No, at no point in this film do either of them go, oh God, and then go off and have a wank. Mm. It's never like, even that. Wanking yeah. doesn't exist in this universe. It, it clears your head, folks. Mm, yeah. <laughs> If, you, if you're suffering from anxiety-related insomnia... And a Robin it's Williams. It's really helpful. <laughs> if Robin Williams just won't get off your case, have, have a, a wank. wank. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But it's... Like, what I've been describing is creepy as fuck, right? But you forgot about Alter Boy. Robin Williams and this fucking child who looks like young Jack Black from the Tenacious D movie are together the whole movie. It's never explained who this kid's parents are, whether they're granting him permission to spend his entire young life with this man. It would almost make more sense if he was his son, but he's a priest, so that doesn't work. Like, or or he was his war... Like, he's he's a boy hanging around with this priest. Like, you can't make a movie about a priest who spends all of his time with a boy in 2007 and go... I see nothing wrong with this. Mm. He and Alter Boy bug their house. They bug the lamp, and then they're in a van, listening, hoping for sex to happen so that they can intervene. Do you know how fucking creepy it is to have an adult Robin Williams with a boy dressed as a priest in a van listening to John Krasinski and Mandy Moore considering having sex, hoping that it will so that they can... And the kid's like, you know what we're going to do now? Turn up the heat. The kid's really on point with, we've got to stop these guys having sex. He is this guy's fucking Robin. And it is just... It's just... It's it's bone-chilling watching this happen again and again and again. I would love to hear We Hate Movies cover this film. But coming up, you have the one sequence I really want to hear them talk about. But the next thing they do, they get sent these two robot babies. These two little monster robot, like, golem gremlin things. Oh, it's disgusting! It is outrageous that they get given these, these, these two babies to care for. You know, like a flower child, that exercise? But it's like, well, this is the 21st century version of that. These two things, they look like... It's like the baby in train spotting times two in a double baby Bjorn. Ben's holding it up and this thing fucking snots all over him and fucking ooze is coming out of it. His friend comes along just before they leave and goes, here's my two kids as well. So they get given these two toddlers who aren't theirs, these two fake babies that are under their care and they go to a department store to tag up wedding gifts and mandy moore who by the way is totally oblivious to all the shit ben's going through it's just like so i just beep all of these things she's going off completely without looking after any of the children to like scan everything she wants for their wedding and john krasinski's wrestling with these hyperactive kids and these two little fucking goblin things and given that Part of the conflict is that she wants four kids, which they are now in charge of, and he only wants a couple of kids. She needed to be going through this. She needed to be the one having this conflict. Exactly! If Ben's fear is that four kids is too many, all this does is confirm that fear. If she wants to convince him that four is not too many, this is the absolute worst thing she could have forced him to do. 
If your two parents have four kids, deal with two children each. In this case, one live, one, one robot. But she's just blinking away, blip, 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 while Ben is in the middle of a nightmare. This fucking android baby thing with a fucking... Also, it looks like it's full of scarab beetles about to hatch out of it. It really does, it's horrendous. It's, it is, as Laura Kate Dale said, it is a holiday home for a murderer's ghost. Also, <laughs> I do not have four children, but I would posit that if you have four children, you shop online a lot, especially for something as straightforward as a wedding list. It's chucking him in, not just the deep end, it's chucking just Ben in at in the, the deep, deep end, end with, with weights around his, to his feet. And it's like, right, now you're drowning. What does that feel like? Well, it feels like drowning, Father. <laughs> so this little fucking demon thing, like, goes... And shits itself. It's in his baby Bjorn. And the one on the his left, just like... And then you could see on Ben's face that this thing is is actually shitting. And he's like, oh, that's potent. Oh, God, that's, that's really actually doing that. And he takes these fucking creep things to the to the changing room and this like the whole gag is this mum thinks that these little fucking automatons are real babies and he's like chucking them around and bashing their heads off of things and this fucking device like it like he pulls off the diaper and it's shitting blue play-doh everywhere and he holds it up and of course in his mouth because you can't do a joke about a baby changing without pissing in the mouth of a man what is your obsession Hollywood with babies pissing in men's mouths you fucking creep weirdos go and see a psychologist about this weird fucking obsession with babies pissing into the mouths of men you fucking creeps you disturb me Yes? Okay. <laughs> this, this, this bit where he takes them into the changing room bothered me on many, many levels. And you've you've kind of covered the, the gut level of most of them, but there are two things. Oh, let the baby robot piss in his mouth. Really, really bothered me. Okay. The first one is that he takes them into the changing room. Do you know what by the way, Robin Williams is getting away from this shit unscathed. Too much going on. It's not his fault. No. All the slapstick is a pot like three times they get a joke out of the fact that John Krasinski falls over. Stop making John Krasinski fall over. It's not inherently funny in itself. It's not worth it. It's not his brand of comedy. No, it really isn't. And here's my precious baby. Leave him alone. Anyway, moving on. (sighs) So he goes into this changing room. My precious baby drunk because it's getting low. With such good abs. Yeah, I know. Um... There is one good bit of this film I'm not trading off. This is hysteria we haven't reached since Superman 4 and Alien Resurrection films. Right, when he takes the, the, the automatons into the changing room, right? First off, they completely, by 
bypass the opportunity to make an observation of the fact that he is dad taking babies into a baby changing room which notoriously are attached to ladies toilets and that there is very very often this this stigma well, there's a woman and... in there with her kid yeah. those would be that door would be locked you don't go in there when another woman's in well, there no 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 it does look like it's quite a big room and they have multiple okay. changing tables. So, they, you know, they do have those in malls where... Whenever I had to change Lyra in public, it was always in a yeah, private in bathroom. this country, they tend to do them very small and... Ooh, fucking hell. Um, but, yeah, I'm sometimes they have, right they have bigger ones and then there's little cubicles with chairs and curtains if you want to breastfeed and blah, blah, blah. But there is still this thing about dads taking babies in to change them and it... You know, could have done with maybe a little bit of observation. I don't think this is the platform. I'm not saying, you know, you have a moral duty and blah, blah, blah. But they completely bypass that one totally, which indicates to me a fundamental lack of understanding from anybody on the writing or directorial staff about what happens when dads have to care for babies that are shit. Side note, by the way, baby shit like once every few hours. Who filled this baby up with shit and why didn't it shit before? Mm. Indeed. Um, so, yeah, so you mean you could have shit at any time, baby? <laughs> Not at any time. Only, Only when, when it was, was funny. <laughs> so <laughs> that would have been Baby Herman. Indeed. So, the, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that the woman who is in there is sorting out her own kids. So obviously her attention is slightly elsewhere. But John Krasinski comes into the changing room holding up the offending pooping baby upside down by the ankle. <laughs> <laughs> Throws it onto the changing table, <laughs> removes its clothing to reveal that its entire sort of pelvic area looks like the inside of an iPhone. But it's 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 just it's wires and metal boxes. Yep. If you've gone if you've gone to the trouble of making this thing actually shit, consider that all of that blue shit is going to mess up those wires. You know that no such golem exists. No. That bit would be covered up. It would look like a baby's, a baby's ass. And then this sort of this blue stuff comes out of what looks like an ice cream dispenser. Oh, it's disgusting! And oozes all over the And it smells of shit. It's opened up and apparently smells of shit. Okay, right. Why is the it not? Point. No, 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 no. Why, wait, 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 no, no. wait. why isn't it brown? Do you know why? Because it would disgust people. Right, but this is the thing. The point at which this woman, who has, in theory, observed this whole fucking rigmarole, the point at which she gives him a disapproving harumph and a look as if to say, do you have no idea how to take care of your children, sir, is when she realises that the shit is blue. That's the only thing that seems to bother her. I didn't tip you off that I got a Terminator baby, lady. It's a Star Trek blicky light oh, issue. shit. We'll have an issue with that because you're obviously feeding it something weird. And then she just disappears. When he goes out there, like, oh. it's this whole time, but, like, when he's got these two kids and the baby beyond, he looks like double Coato. He's got this, Quaid, start the reactor thing reaching out from his chest. It's, it's unnerving. And he beats this baby to scrap. Like, this thing starts crying, and he starts shouting at it, like, Shut up! Shut up! Like, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Shut up! 
Shut the fuck you have up! No right to take me shut to up! Will you shut up? Shut up! Shut! 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 Shut up! Shut up! And then he beats it to springs. And then a security guard comes over and goes, Hey! And he goes, Wait, it's just an automaton. And its head falls off. End of comedy. Do you know what's not funny? Beating a child to death? Gags about people shaking babies. Yeah. It's not funny. It's not funny. This is the nadir of the movie, which is the nadir of Robin Williams' career. So, like I said, him not being present, it's kind of a good thing. Yeah. You're right about it being the nadir, actually. The rest of it is... The rest of it actually looks practically... It, it sort of picks up after this ridiculous low point. Again, that this, much like Nine Months, is characters acting like idiotic monsters to serve a nonsensical plot written by a halfwit. And it's like... Well, the plot doesn't really seem like it's holding together. Let's make people act more stupidly. The recording of this episode ran long, and the Bicentennial Man and License to Wed sections ended up having 45 minutes of footage sheared off so that I could get the whole show in at around the two-hour mark. That deleted material is on the Robin Williams Cutting Class episode available on Patreon to everyone at the $5 level or more. And if you're at the $15 level, you of course get a sponsor credit every episode. So a great big Ale of Sky says thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Mike, I'm not going to do the whole thing with Mr. Michael Hasco, Matthew A. Siebert, Benjamin Biddle, Joseph Gluck, oh dear, Sean Doran, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, oh God, I can't stop doing it. Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave, H- Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse. <laughs> it's like I'm being possessed by the ghost of Doubtfire. Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm, dear. Thank you all for your continued generosity. And now, without further ado, we have the one you've all been waiting for. To put his family back together, Daniel Hillard needed a job. Do you have any special skills? I do voices. And a decent home for his kids. How do you like it? Can't you just tell Mom you're sorry? But he found a way. I'm placing an ad for a housekeeper. Housekeeper? Could you make me a woman? To have both. Wow. Let's pray. Hello? Mrs. Hillard, I presume? Yes. I'm Miranda Hillard. Euphigenia Doubtfire. Oh, yes. Won't you please come in? Thank you, dear. Before you ask, yes, I know about the trailer on YouTube that's been recut to make it seem like a thriller. It's very good. Have you seen the one where they make The Shining look like a sweet-natured Cameron Crowe style getting back together with the family? It's even more bone-chilling. A lot of what you're about to hear has been in our archive for about five years because we recorded it just prior to the death of Robin Williams and we decided not to put this show out. Until now. 
Okay, so next up, Mrs. Doubtfire. Now, we could just say, just listen to the We Hate Movies review of this because it's fan-bloody-tastic. And pretty much everything we're going to say, they've said in some way. But we, we do at least want to mention it because um, we, we now have new information on, in terms of the Mrs. Doubtfire franchise. That's right, folks. This film's getting a sequel. It didn't. It didn't. <laughs> Boy, some of that stuff can really date. This part of the show is going to be split into two parts. Uh, one retrospective talking back in uh, 2014, before Robin Williams died, and the other now, 2019, five years later. Mm, uh, and the world is sorely in need of Robin Williams. You're going to find that us in the past are a lot more scathing about Mrs. Doubtfire than us now. We went back and watched it again just to to see if we'd softened on it, and we have. So while you're going to get it from both sides, actually, quite a lot of scathing on one side from the past and quite a lot of, well, you know... There, there are still plenty of oh, yeah. bits there's problems. Like... We're not going to excuse some of this stuff. No. Yeah. No. Effectively here, we are delivering a director's commentary on our own work. Thinking about it, you know, in terms of what we're putting out here, we kind of have to be careful because this film is beloved and we're going to, we could possibly, especially as we've already done three Robin Williams, four, including Good Will Hunting, five, including Hook, which we didn't particularly love, six, including Aladdin, seven, including Jibanti. <laughs> is he the most covered artist that whose work we've talked about? He might be. If we're not talking about Marvels... Yeah. Let us know if you can think of anyone we've covered more. Mm. So, yeah, it would appear that we're quite... We've we got, got a lot to say about Robin Williams. But, yeah, this this one in particular, this, there was a reason we're saving this one for the end, and it's, it's beloved. Um, what do you think of... Because we never really got this established. I cut out a bit here in the original show where I was really scathing about Chris Columbus's work, and... I actually have changed in five years since then after watching a lot of other film directors' work. I think I just watched quite a few at that point and I was, I was, I'd had it up to here with Chris Columbus. But what, what do you think of him? I, the phrase that springs to mind, actually, and I believe this was originally Is applied pork to dressed Robin as Williams. Mutton. Uh, <laughs> no, um, moist-eyed camera hog, only Columbus is hogging it from the other side. Right. He does have a very misty, naive, rose-coloured mm. spectacles way of looking at the world. And There's a reason why he's actually alarmingly appropriate for the Harry Potter films. For the first, first two. Harry Potter One, films. Maybe. And honestly, I think they could, probably could have switched him out for Chamber. Del Toro. Yes, thank you. Um, too late now, but never mind. He got um, offered it. But I think he was offered Azkaban. For the, for the first one, I think he did a pretty reasonable job. He Home Alone is it, still great. Yeah, he introduced the world well enough for people to want more, hmm. which is good. The childlike wonder of it all, you can write off as being the fact that Harry's 11. Hmm. And how does he direct Mrs. Doubtfire? There's still a little bit too much casual racism and sexism. and. I think one of the problems we're finding here is the eye of the film. And this is something we don't usually go into, but the eye of the film, when it's observing 
some troubling stuff and going, this is fun, isn't it? Yeah. Chris Columbus definitely directs a lot of things that now don't quite work. So gird your loins, folks. We're going to be talking about stuff that doesn't quite work. And I think that's down to Chris Columbus being kind of in love with Robin Williams. Maybe so. I mean, again, not to keep coming back to Harry Potter, but using that as a more modern reference point on where Columbus has gone. Mm. There's none of that in there. Or at least there's so little that you wouldn't even notice it. So he's obviously grown out of... Okay, back to the past. So the premise is this, and it comes from a... Was it a French film or a French book? No, 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 it is an English book. An English book called uh, Madame Doubtfire. Madame Doubtfire uh, by a writer called Anne Fine, um, who is a, an extremely high quality uh, writer of young adult fiction. Um, and it was intended to look at um, a non-nuclear family and the idea that families can be broken, but that's not always the end of the world. And that there are ways in which when people are separated, there's still love remaining for the children. Oh, God. Um... Where do I begin? Let's begin, because we never actually covered this in the original thing, uh, with the recording the cartoon live, which is crazy. You don't do that. It's out of control. Mm. Right, okay. I'm looking back on it, and I am mystified at that what were they trying to convey. We all know that voiceover artists record the voices, and then the cartoon is animated to that. There's that Simpsons gag. It's a terrible strain on the animator's wrist. But um, I don't even get the fact that the cigarette thing happens there, because obviously that's poking, cocking a snook at the fact that the Flintstones advertised cigarettes to kids back in the 50s. So it makes sense if this is a cartoon from the 50s that they're revoicing. Mm-hmm. And they're keeping the cigarette stuff in. But if they, yeah, if they were to revoice a cartoon from the ye olden days, then they'd be doing it with a comedy vocal track in order to get laughs. In which case, what he's doing is better than whatever they had written down. Yeah, it's very confusing. It is, but and it, it's mi- it it's has... sowing misinformation in guys. We got like kids watching, they're like, "That's how cartoons are made." It, it has been mentioned that of all the things that Hollywood butchers in its portrayal of, the art of making films yeah. is one of the things it persistently will not represent accurately. I can only assume because the real truth of how movies, etc., are made is incredibly slow and boring. No, because we've watched a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff. That's often more fascinating than the films themselves. Oh, yes. But actually fictionalising the making of a film, I mean. Okay. Also, you get, well, I've got to do what I've got to do. Oh, yes. The, uh, you know, give, save the Gandhi of... speech. The first bit of slightly racist stuff. that the like It bookends the film because you've got that... And then at the very end, they, uh, w- uh, what language do they speak in England? Corvax, the m- what language do they speak in England? You know what I did? I held off on doing the Mrs. Doubtfire uh, impressions back there, back in the day, and now I'm going to give you them both barrels, dears. So, Corvax, what language do they speak in England? Sharon doesn't want to say it, but the monkey goes, Pakistani! And it's like, where do I begin with that? Um... And probably Mrs. best not to. Probably best not to. <laughs> you know, it's like a throwaway gag, but the implication is that there are now so many Pakistani immigrants to this country that they have changed the way we speak. This is the rhetoric of racists. Uh, Mrs. Delphire follows that up with, oh, that's right, Kovacs in many stores, they do. And she... Mm. 
<clears throat> Williams like gets a slight dude that's right go like uh, I, I can't even do it because I won't uh, like gets a little bit of an apu twang on it and it's I'm not going, this is reprehensible. It's very important, by the way. Lindsay Ellis mentioned this a while back, and I've been thinking and thinking and thinking about it. To be able to differentiate between thing bad and element of thing bad. Mm. This element of Mrs. Doubtfire is bad. This element of a lot of Robin Williams' comedy was bad. That doesn't make Robin Williams bad. It made this shit bad. And something to be taken into account when you consider him as a comedian and as a man. By the way, which is when he rose to prominence in the 70s, they made those kind of stupid racist, like, doing, a, doing an accent thing, and it was fine, because people were stupid back then. They're less stupid now. And as a result, the humour is a lot less fine now. Comedy is a medium with a very definite shelf life. And that's kind of the way things should be. Comedians, by their nature, are transgressive. They have to push boundaries. Sometimes they push in weird directions relative to where society is going. And things are refined and things are revised and comedy changes and evolves and gets different. And that is absolutely A-OK. If we are expected to find all the same comedy, both equally hilarious and evergreen, then pull up a chair, i got a Shakespeare comedy to show you. Followed by some blackface. One thing that I would observe, and this is purely coming from my standpoint, I've said before about everybody's got to draw their own line and and decide what's okay for them if nobody's being, like, immediately, directly hurt out of a situation. One thing's for sure. Comedy is very complex and remarkably personal. And I was talking about uh, how Robin Williams, especially in the early 90s, fresh off Aladdin, was hot shit at the time. And people seemed to love him throughout that early 90s period, like he was, uh, you know, he was on top of the world. It's kind of when he carved out his persona in the comedies with the warmth and the childlike glee, but with a slight edge to him. Like, you know, he could say something that was a bit more adult. And I think that's probably what gave him the edge over, uh, like, child entertainers. Mm. Because it meant that there would always be something for the adults. And he could, like, pepper what he was saying with things that maybe the adults wouldn't... That the adults would get, but the little children wouldn't get. And that does tie in with what he's saying in the film about don't pander to children. Don't talk down to them. Don't patronise them. If it makes you laugh, it'll probably make them laugh too. Hmm. I mean, obviously, there's innuendo and things that, that doesn't fall under that umbrella. But for the most part, mm. kids of a certain age, I mean, they, they generally say if you're going to write something that you want to be universally accessible, you need to pitch it at a smart eight-year-old. Mm. It feels like Robin Williams flew high for a couple of years and then Jim Carrey swooped in and delivered a much more intense dosage of wacky with less heart and more creepy to more success. And uh, it's clear that what we're getting in Mrs. Doubtfire is stuff that Robin Williams and Chris Columbus both find hilarious. Mm. You'll also note that anytime anybody is, like, stony-faced, Robin Williams goes all sort of, hmm. Oh, by the way, do you have any special skills? Oh, yes. I do. I, I do voices. What do you mean, you do voices? Well, I do voices. Yes! We've come to this planet looking for intelligent life. Oops, we made a mistake. We're happy to be in America. Don't ask for a green card. <laughs> I want you in the worst way. Well, it's certainly a rough meeting, and it's not going very well for me, I'll tell you that. Hey, boss, give it a change. She's going to loosen up any moment. <laughs> Look at me right now, money penny. I want to undo that bow and get to know you. 
I'm crazy to make a deal with you. Nancy and I are still looking for the other half of my head. Idiot! You're doing it! I'm sitting on a gold mine! Don't make me smack you, sweetheart. I'll do it. I do a great impression of a hot dog. Mr. Hillard, do you consider yourself humorous? I used to. There was a time when I found myself funny. But today, you have proven me wrong. Thank you. Kind of like, if you don't laugh at this, this is you. Mm. Which is a little bit strawmanish. You, you'll also notice that, like, there's a point where Miranda is having a go at him for being the clown all the mm-hmm. time. And the way he kind of... He shuffles and he looks down at the floor and he, he seems to visibly shrink. And that seems really authentic. That seems like somebody who has used comedy as a defence mechanism for years and years. And that's his response when somebody slaps that away. Because if if that's rejected, if the comedy and the, the jokey joke is rejected, what does he have left? Mm. And that's part of the appeal of Daniel's character. That's part of what makes what works in this film work. Yeah. So, yeah, Robin Williams, warm, very, very crazy energy, but with an edge to him. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say he basically does Mork, but that's Mork. That's what Mork does. He, he does well, no, ridiculous no, no. Uh, let, Let's face it, Mork was a way of getting Robin Williams on screen. Exactly. It was like, have you seen this guy? Look, look at what you can do. Do what you can do. That is what Robin Williams does in his comedies. Only he just put words in instead of those sounds. But that's basically... Only sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and this film is full of montages of him doing that. And the... Context is, oh God, for the people who haven't seen it, Jesus, how do we describe this? Idiot man-child tries to pull a birth... Oh God. Right, okay. Okay, okay, you you do this one. In its most simple form. Okay. Uh, Couple have three children. She works professional, very busy. She's the grown-up. She wears the grown-up pants. Yeah. He, unemployed actor... Um, very little sense of taking responsibility of anything. So we've stereotyped already before yeah. we've even started. Deadbeat dad, but it's <clears> so <throat> much fun. Well, it's exactly. You, you well, are never is... supposed to be not on the side of Daniel in this film. No. You're supposed to go, look at him. He's such fun as a dad. Who wouldn't want that guy as a husband, as a father? You're meant to have a little sympathy for Miranda, but not much. You sort of see it from her point of view when she says, I became this really uptight, horrible person when I'm around him because someone has to wear the grown-up pants. Well, somebody has to make sure that the kids aren't poisoning themselves. When and that the house doesn't burn down. Out of bleach. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so um, she decides that she's had enough of this setup um, and asks him for a divorce. Oh, he... awesome. She says, we're having a divorce. Well, indeed, he has to consent to the divorce. This is great. Well, he eventually goes, he does. Oh, we have plenty in common. We love each other. And she goes... Yeah. And it's this like it's supposed to be like crushing, but it's like yeah, I'm totally with you, Miranda. In this point, yeah. I can't also, see how anyone would love this man. That's not something that you have in common. Your suggestion there is that 
you, you love, love each other. I love me. If yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> if it's something that I, you have I love in when common. I do this, <laughs> and you love when I do this. Yeah, um, which clearly she doesn't. Anyway, so um, I can always divorce, make you laugh. Divorce ensues, and um, they basically because Daniel continues to be unemployed actor living in he shoddy is flat. He is, he is denied access, regular access to his children. He's allowed to see them once a week on Saturdays, which is i mean frankly that's how often i see lyra but that's the thing miranda doesn't get to see her kids during the week no because she's at work but anyway so when she comes home so she then decides that because she's at work uh, through the week she needs a housekeeper to come and, and cook the evening meal and look after the kids after school and daniel says well i could do that and she's she not on your uh, fucking life no um I so in the house he decides is the most appropriate and adult way to deal with this situation. Firstly, sabotage. Is to um, apply for the job. Uh, 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 first off, he sabotages it. Uh, messes up her advertisement so that only he has the correct phone number. He then rings her repeatedly, pretending to be uh, allegedly very scary people that she would never possibly want to hire. Like crazy um, drug addicts and, oh, right, it, already it throws its hat into the ring in terms of uh, transgender identity and male-female. Oh, God, yes. Uh, uh, one, of his, one of one his of, characters yeah. that he, he calls her and says, um, you know, so, oh, so, so what children do you have? Uh, my name is Ilsa Immelman. My name is Ilsa. How many yeah. children do you have? And she says she has two girls and a boy. Oh, ah, a boy. A boy. No. I don't work with the male because I used to be one. Yeah, oh, for the love. And she goes, oh, yikes, in a kind of fucking, whoa, post-op, no way. This is 1993. Uh, I mean, ah. If you want your movie to date, then make these kind of sweeping (laughs) statements for comedy value straight away. So ridiculous. And then... um... He, He acts like various crazy people to make her want the first relatively stable voice she hears. Now, they're all his voices. If Robin Williams phoned you up tomorrow, you, any one of you listeners out there, and did one of his voices, you go, is that, is that Robin Williams? And that's, that's not after 14 years of being married to him. How the living fuck does Miranda not cotton on to him at any point? Okay, folks, that's dated somewhat. If Robin Williams calls you up tomorrow, uh, hang up the phone, I think. Or or, or don't take this special opportunity to, uh, to speak with uh, uh, the, the, the spiritual essence of Robin Williams somehow able to use the telephone. He'd probably have some interesting things to say. Uh, that makes me sad. I, I wish it wasn't that um, dated. Does it make you laugh? In bits, yes. There are certain scenes um, that that I do find amusing. Um, I find Mara Wilson a lot less hateable than I did the first time I saw it. She, I mean, she lifts along like that. She's just she like does. adorable. But I think that the thing is, she's now, uh, you know, she's grown into a very intelligent young woman, and and you know, following her on Twitter and and knowing who who she puts herself across as a, <laughs> as a, an individual more. She doesn't say Jeepers Mythical. <laughs> <laughs> Not to my knowledge, no. 
I will reiterate that grown up equals bad guy in this film for so much of the way through that I don't think it fully realizes at the end that grown up equals good guy for mm. in terms of being a parent. I I found myself much more sympathetic with Miranda this time. I mean, before I was anyway, but feeling that the film didn't want me to be. Yeah. But it actually felt this time we watched it that there is much more. She's so frustrated about this situation and he's not helping her at all. And I can completely understand why she would come to the conclusion that that marriage isn't going to work and also why she would be resistant to finding any way to to fix things in the first instance because she's got no she's been she's been trying to make this work for 14 years she's got no reason to believe that changing tactics now will help when she says i want a divorce uh which uh, obviously in the the 90s was the, were these terrifying the four words no one wants to hear and yet it was becoming a reality for so many families my family split up at the end of 1993 the year this came out hmm in fact fuck I moved in with my father in December of 1993, and this came out in January of 94. I'm surprised it didn't hit me so much harder. Um, Daniel reacts to it, to what his wife says, like a nine-year-old. His face goes all, oh, and it's crushed, and he looks infantile. And it made me feel sorry for him, but I'm not sure whether that was intentional, mm. whether R- Williams is playing Daniel like a man mm. or like a child. Well, we never get any insight into why he is the way he is. And honestly, I think we could have done with some of that. Maybe. It's not in the original book, obviously, but yeah. but I think that would have been useful in terms of rounding out the the story. And then when it comes to the court case, uh, we weren't sympathetic in the past, uh, back when we did this in 2014, but I'm going to say it got more sympathy from me this time because when he's relegated to one day a week, I'd still been Lyra's father for many, many, many years, but just trying to wrap my head around the idea of going from I see her every single day and I look after her to I only get to see her once a week, that puts a hell of a lot of that in perspective. It seems like it seems like Miranda is actually actively trying to hurt him as revenge for him fucking around so much mm. at that point. She seems to feel bad about it, but it hurts him to be told one day a week. And that made me feel sorry for Daniel. Yeah, I definitely. mean, I think to an extent she's trying to curb the negative impact that he has on the kids. Yeah, that's the other thing, because it's like... I need to get you away because you are a force of chaos. You need to grow the fuck up. You can't do that if you keep interfering with our, fa- our this side of the family. You've got to, like, you know, I want you to go out there and become a man is effectively what she is shittily saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I was quite scathing of, of that situation when we recorded in 2014. And I think I said that I only see Lyra on Saturdays or, or at the weekends, but it, that's it's not even comparison. You, you, see, know, her see, her morning. Morning. you see her every morning. You see her every evening. It's, it's not the same thing. Yeah. You're, you know that she's asleep right now upstairs, not, um, you know, across the city. Yeah. Yeah. However, the decisions he makes, the fraud he commits, the fucking around with his own family that he, that he goes through for this... It's extraordinary. He's trying to be mates with the kids, especially Chris, and yeah. it's that is not healthy. Yeah. Although, like Mara Wilson, uh, you say it at the end here that she's quite she was quite hateable <coughs> when you when you saw it for many many years. Uh, but you like you've only now like started to really like her on Twitter as an adult, and like, I I never really 
hated Mara Wilson. She, she was, you know, she always skips parts. Um, uh, like she was a maniac in Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, which is again ridiculously charming, but mainly because of Richard Attenborough. But she comes off as incredibly natural in this, and clearly Mara Wilson really, really liked Robin Williams. You can see that in every shot there Absolutely. together. Yeah, I, I don't. And that know. powers the film. I don't know what I was on. She's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I apologise unreservedly mm. for that observation. Also, a nice uh, moment I noticed uh, when uh, Daniel saying goodbye to the three kids prior to going on to his hoodwinking rampage, uh, before Mrs. Doubtfire's even on the table, uh, he says to Lydia, she says, I'm going to miss you, and he mutters ditto, and it's like, oh, they've watched Ghost together. It meant a lot to Lydia. He's saying that, and they don't lampshade it any more than that mm. that's a nice detail yeah. then Matthew Lawrence's Chris says I should never have had a birthday which is a dumb thing to say by the way he's wearing like a, a shirt the size of a giant painting smock look it was the 90s it Just was the 90s be grateful you can see his eyes he yeah. should have had a six inch fringe hanging over his nose I was that boy I wore like a poncho style shirt anyway he says uh, I should never have had a birthday which is a dumb thing to say but then, then uh, uh, Daniel says no, 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 it was an accident waiting to happen. It was an accident. Now, they never really focus on that. Daniel still believes that Miranda coming home to find the goddamn San Diego petting zoo in her ho- A horse in the house, as Andrew Jupin said. <laughs> to find that shit going on was an accident? An accident, Daniel. Refusing to claim any responsibility for it. Jesus Christ. That, if nothing else, is indicative that this guy needs to grow the fuck up. But okay, on with the madness. When I saw it when I was a lot younger, um, I think possibly because I was seeing it very much from the perspective of actually Lydia, the the oldest girl, because that's probably around about the age that I was when I saw it, about... 14, 15, 16. Um, I, and I thought Stu, uh, Pierce Brosnan's character, was a complete sleazeball. Hated him. Um, and but now he actually it, seems like, like a really stand-up yeah, guy. he seems... He's actually pretty nice. Um, there's a, he a is brief... a bit slimy because he's Pierce Brosnan, and so you get a bit of a, the bond. You can't in help there. that. But this and was pre-bond, also, wasn't it? There is also the fact that um, he sort of says to Miranda because she's working on a project for a building that he owns. She's like an interior designer or, or something, um, or a, um, yeah, I think she's an interior designer, sort of stroke architect type job and he's got this property that she's uh, renovating and this is the first time they've met um I, th- I get the impression that she knew he'd hired her but they'd never actually sat down and discussed it and he sort of says something about oh i've been following your career in the in the trade papers and i was like is that a little bit stalkerish if i met somebody that i hadn't seen for 10 years and they said that they'd been kind of you know googling me and and looking to see what i'd been up to and then it doesn't seem as sinister really because basically just imagine that like you're reading through the paper and her name just catches your eye and then a few uh, months later you're reading through the paper and her name catches your eye again you're like oh miranda's doing okay for herself Mm -hmm. and like basically all he has to have done is like catch that three times and he's got something to mention to her next time that he sees her like you know i've been following you in the in the paper just literally means i noticed that you were climbing the the career ladder he 
is at least honest about it. That isn't something that he then nurtures yeah. as his own little secret. But I mean, it, the way it's directed at it for kids, because Lyra said, I hate him. I said, why do you hate him? And she went, well, because I like him. And she pointed at Daniel. I said, why do you like him? Because he's funny. And that's basically all you really need if you're a kid. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, she, he was the genie and she recognised that straight away within six seconds and Miranda is supposed to have been married to him for 14 years, folks. And she never guesses that it is in fact Daniel. Because they all sound like Robin Williams. Indeed. And also, crazy people, not the correct phrase here either. Undesirable housekeepers. <laughs> I love his... Uh, the, the, the Spanish guy who goes, hey... M job for some reason that was an uh, amusing enough meme even today. I am job is a great way of uh, summarizing somebody who probably who is completely like inappropriate for for what it is that you're looking for. But anyway, so um, having done all this, um, he then calls again, pretending to be this uh, incredibly kind, uh, experienced Scottish woman um, who is uh, 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 good with uh, children, British woman. No, no, no. No, You see, this is my point. His accent is Scottish. It's Isle of Skye. Very apparently Scottish. And They they uh, constantly refer to it as British. No, no, no. They don't. They don't even. They constantly refer to her as English. English? Yes. Sorry. England, Uh, as we all know, folks, is an island. Yes. (laughs) What? Anyway. No, they do say that at one point, that England is an an island. It's a chimpanzee who says it. Yeah, but it's supposed to be an educational program. There may be people who would like England to be an island, but it's not. Anyway. But they would like the chimp to go back to Bongo Bongo land. Quite possibly. Translation there, because I never explained what Bongo Bongo land was. It's something that in July 2013, a UKIP representative, UKIP are like... Uh, stupid, old, white, racist men. Yeah, they're our tea party. Yeah, they were the ones... Responsible for the Brexit debacle. Pretty much. Uh, Yeah, this representative, Godfrey Bloom, used it in reference to countries outside of England receiving British aid, send all our money off to Bongo Bongo Land, before being relieved of his position because UKIP didn't want to be seen as being about racism three years before they founded their Brexit on racism. Then we had a Brexit still in progress. Yay! That'll date. I hope. Mm. Fingers crossed. Let's future-proof it, right? Thank God we never Brexited. Okay. Oh, remember when we Brexited? Brexited. It fucking sucked. (laughs) Oh, man. Like, it was such a debacle, and everyone went hungry, and people died. Actually fucking straight up died. And eventually, after enough people lost their jobs, decisions were made to backpedal on this fucking ridiculous, shameful situation. So, yeah... Brexit didn't bring anyone happiness in the end. I do love the phrase gammon, though. I don't think Americans have it, but it's like a boiled ham, and it describes the faces of the old white racist, or the old pink racist men who shout this shit. Gammon. That's what you are. That's you, that is. So he then applies for the job um, as this woman and um, is asked to come in for an interview. So he goes to see his um, uh, brother, who is a a makeup artist. Played by Harvey Firestein, whom Lyra commented sounded like Wolverine. Brilliant. Um, Yeah, I I can make you up. I'm the best I am at what I do. (laughs) What I do, it's terribly pretty. 
absolutely. So um, Harvey Firestein and his husband are uh, working through all of these makeup oh, oh, oh. ideas. Uncle, what's his, what's his actual name? Oh, they refer to him as Jack. He refers to him as Aunt Jack. There you go. That shows how cool uh, Robin Williams' character is with gay men in uh, in a long term relationship. He calls one of them Aunt. Marvelous. Yeah. So anyway. Um, so they, they make him up as, as um, uh, a woman, and this is actually <laughs> one of they, they go through – well, I, I'm trying to this be brief here. Had, no point. <laughs> this is something but, we hate movies pointed out brilliantly. He's already laid down the Doubtfire persona by being like a, an old Scottish woman on the phone to Miranda, his wife. So why did they dress him up like a Cuban woman and then Barbara Streisand? And then an old Jewish woman, when there's only really one type of character you can go for here. Answer, montages. And so Robert Williams can go, oh, I am feeling fabulous right now because I met this beautiful Cuban and doing like every different accent he knows. And just as an excuse for him to do Barbara. Watching it with the subtitles on, I was actually really disappointed because that line, I met this beautiful human. Did you think it was beautiful human? I thought it was beautiful human, which I thought was brilliant. Beautiful human. But yes, so this this does lead into um, about the one scene in the film that I actually really like, which Uh is where um, uh, Jack and uh, Frank, Mm. um, Harvey Feistie's character, step back to admire their handiwork. And um, and Daniel says, so how do I look? Are we close? And he says, any closer and you'd be mom. Any closer and you'd be mom. Thank you. You do a better Harvey Feierstein voice than I do. I certainly um, do. <laughs> and that's, I just, I love that. I that's just such a sweet shot. Um, so he turns up for the interview and completely convinces his wife that he is, in fact, an aging Scottish housekeeper um, and gets the job then proceeds to look after his children in a very professional way by um, learning to cook and cleaning the house. And, uh, and I'm sat there thinking, and there's a reason you couldn't have done any of this while you were still married to her? You fucking deadbeat. You didn't know how to do this? He d- actually, he doesn't learn to clean the house. He makes the children do it! To start with, but he, he does kind of then get to do it later on. But it just... There was there was something about the way uh, – because the social worker comes up to his flat to see how he's getting on oh. in terms of looking after himself. She was Greta in Liar Liar. She's style. great. I love oh, her. Oh, she is fantastic. The place is an utter Alison, what's her name? Anne Haney. Anne Haney. She's great. She is now she's sadly great. departed. But uh, she's the straight woman in uh, scenes where somebody's acting crazy. Like the, We've gone past it. There's a sequence where he just goes through a bunch of different voices and it just goes jump cut, jump cut, jump cut. Again, this was on We Hate Movies. You know that they just had to sit there while the camera rolled for fucking six hours while Robin Williams just ran his mouth. Again, not crazy, ridiculously over the top. Yeah. So he's he's in the flat and it's a complete tip and he's living on takeaways. And I'm just thinking, how does a human being survive? How have you got to this age and you don't actually know how to wash your clothes? In fact... It's a bit of a stretch that you know how to wash yourself. (laughs) So somehow he goes from that to being able to run the house so immaculately that she is convinced by his entirely fake resume. There's no background checks. Clearly he's taking it cash in hand. There's no reason for this movie to sustain its premise. And there's 
there's the the whole sequence at the end. He has to sort of juggle him. Oh God. <sighs> The, uh, he works at a TV studio, like sort of shipping and boxing film, and uh, then like he sneaks into the studio late at night uh, and like picks up the dinosaurs, the toys, and starts acting out what he'd like to do for a dinosaur program because the version that they do in the studio is really really boring. And watching him just go like ape shit with these dinosaurs, I can't play you a clip. There's no clips of this film on YouTube, and and he's going so it's. James Brontosaurus. I eat wood. Dinner, 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 dinner. It tastes good. Dinner, 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 dinner. No meat. Big feet. I eat wood. Bam, 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 bam. Got to go on. Can't help myself. I'm going extinct. And it just goes on and on. And you think he's exactly like Michael Scott. He's amusing the shit out of himself. But in a modern day context, everyone else will be standing around him, stony faced, going, when is he going to stop? Am I wrong here? Do you think that this would make for good TV for children? No. Is he not no, patronising them with this? It's not. It's not. Oh, it's the king, T Rex. That's what kids love. A good old Elvis impersonation. It's not patronising. It's something else, and I'm not entirely certain what the word is for it. If if you can think of a word, madcap for what this this is doing to children. Hyper stimulating them. I that yes. This would amuse little tiny children to watch a grown-up acting like a child. It would creep out adults. So anyway, he has to juggle a meeting with the boss, who, by the way, sees these antics and goes, Now that, that is fucking funny. I could turn that into a TV show. I need to have dinner with you to discuss this. And Miranda says, Oh, you must come to meet... Oh, God, the whole sub... Oh, I haven't even talked about Pierce Brosnan. Um... Very, very briefly, Miranda meets Pierce Brosnan, an old flame of hers, seeks possibility of new life with a much nicer, bolted-down, rich, handsome, successful husband who turns out to be a really good sort of father figure for the kids. And uh, everybody sane watching it goes, yeah, you know what, Pierce Brosnan, good on you. You actually seem like some stability for this family. But no, you're supposed to hate him because Robin Williams is the hero and he's trying to sabotage things by... um, uh, he tells Miranda, uh, as Mrs. Dunfair, no, you must never... Uh, <laughs> what does he say, Sharon? Um, she she oh. says, how long since after your husband died did you ever... Uh, have have desires. Have desires oh, for another man. Never, never. never. Once the, chi- the father of your children's dead, total celibacy is the only possible solution. So this is what he wants. He wants his wife to either come back to him or be miserable and single forever. Is he a selfish shit for feeding... Miranda guilt, effectively, for for having sex with any other man than her now soon-to-be ex, already separated, soon-to-be ex-husband. It, it's a shitty thing to do. That has not altered. It's a selfish thing to do? Yeah. Okay. So... It's quite appalling. I think it's supposed to be quite appalling. But yeah, that's. I think that's the thing. The movie's ever so slightly leaning on, like, come on, Daniel. He's being ridiculous. Here. Okay. So that's something. Oh, and the other, just the most, okay, the worst moment of the entire film, uh, and again, I can't play the clip because it's not on YouTube, is where um, Mrs. Doubtfire takes Stuart aside, sends off his kids to the buffet so that he can get get a word in edgeways and says, you know, well, Miranda's not there. Oh, I suppose you want to uh, get in with Miranda or something to that effect. I hope you don't mind a little competition. She has a power tool, keeps it in the bedroom. Uses it in the, in the in the wall socket and the lights dim. I'm amazed she hasn't chipped her teeth, so she's got a great big dildo. Now, 
Dating a woman who pleasures herself in the privacy of her own home, whether Mrs. Doubtfire spies on her or not, should be fine. And I think Daniel knows this, so he doubles down on the crazy. Now, for this next bit, I'm just going to hand you over to We Hate Movies because there is no possibility of me being funnier than this bit. By the way, she's got crabs. <laughs> the crabs. How would you Come know, on. Mrs. Doubtfire? <laughs> oh, I went to the bathroom, dearie, <laughs> and it looked like someone tipped over an ant farm on the toilet seat. <laughs> I just hope it's not the wee 13-year-old. That's all I can see. I hope it's Sally Field. I really do. I don't remember what the line is, but it's something like, uh, oh, you better bring some shell crackers to dinner. And he's like, what? What did you say? And she's like, well, you know, I'm saying she's got crabs. And he's like, yeah, I fucking got it. Better bring some melted butter <laughs> and a bib with you, dearie. Ooh, she's got a wee tickle of the crabs. She's got pubic lice, and Pierce Brosnan is trying not to vomit into his champagne at this dreadful, indiscreet, horrible old hag next to him. Ugh. There's kind of repeated shots of Daniel, uh, like, you know, winking at, at women trying to come onto them. Like, he's looking at women, and the, the hilarity ensues because he's dressed as an old woman at the time. And it's like, well, that's inappropriate. But they never really, like, question the internal logic, which is that Daniel is looking for, you know, women, especially when he gets sozzled. And yet he fed that line of shit to Miranda about, uh, you know, oh, you don't want to want to be with anyone else apart from your husband, dear. Oh, I think we have established that the gander sauce and the goose sauce are <laughs> extremely disparate in this film. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. The gander sauce never touched the goose sauce. Indeed. And also, also, I will say this, and I can't remember if I said this before, but I'll say it again because it merits saying it again. Daniel's behaviour towards women would be creepy as shit without the Mrs. Doubtfire outfit. Well, that's the thing. Like, then they're not thinking, yes, but this is Daniel doing this. Like, you know, that, that's not a scene. He walks past a... Uh, he, he drives on a bike past a woman in the park and goes, hey, how's Like that. That's, that's not uh, notable. It's just because he's dressed as Mrs. Doubtfire. But... <clears throat> He drinks quite a lot in this movie. Like, you know, when, when they're at the uh, country club, he he, uh, he downs several. Uh, and it's like, at this point, that, you need your wits about exactly. you, sir. That woman in the bikini who he offers to buy a drink hey, for, hey, hey. she looks down the end of the bar and sees slightly inebriated Robin Williams sitting there. She's still saying no thank you. <laughs> Very true, but like he gets sourced during the uh, the end like, sequence. The, the 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 what to facilitate the silliness of him running back and forth as Doubtfire to these two meetings and as Daniel, uh, it requires him to kind of get drunk with the boss, and you know, he doesn't need many for him to stop being like that. And it, honestly, it seems like his judgment is impaired. Mm, yeah, and that never comes up. No. A better dramatic way of playing that sequence is just that he goes over to start the meeting with the boss, gets drunk, and ends up effectively standing up his family. Yeah, but that's not funny. That's no, not what people not. paid to see. It really isn't. I do think, though, the distinction between how we observed this film in 2014 was how it worked as a comedy. How we observed it this time is how it works as a drama. Yeah, that is very true. 
And so he's going back and forth to the bathroom and switch, switching out, and it's a right palaver. But in reality, he would just attend the meeting as Daniel and say, sorry to Miranda, I can't do it, dear. I cannot. I am sick. And, you know, phone in sick. Just don't do it. It's that simple. The only reason that he does tries both at once is because either A, he's absolutely out of his gourd within the context of the movie. Yes. Or B, they just needed this premise. They just needed this set piece for the, for the finale where he's going back and forth. He tries to poison Pierce Brosnan, who he finds out is uh, allergic to cayenne pepper and who just happens to order the jambalaya without cayenne pepper, please, because it might kill me. Jambalaya without cayenne pepper is basically just shrimp. You know, it's a cayenne pepper delivery system. Why not just have anything else? You know, try the sea bass. <laughs> anyway, so he's juggling it all, and his Pierce Brosnan starts choking on a thing, and he runs in as Doubtfire. Does the Heimlich maneuver, which actually gets very cleverly set up earlier at the beginning. Mrs. Doubtfire announces it as one of her skills. But it's blended in with so much other stuff, you don't go, ooh, that's foreshadowing. And traumatises his youngest child, who didn't know he was, she was he. You get this look on her face where you're like, wow, repressed memories are going on here. Because she's just seen her father with half his face off. So yeah, there's going to be a sequel. It's Mrs. Doubtfire 2, and I can tell you right now, it'll star Mara Wilson, and she will be a serial killer who dresses up as Mrs. Doubtfire. There's no other possibility. Mm. Oh my! Because how do you do this? How do you do this again in 2015? Chris Columbus is coming back. Robin Williams is coming back, and it's the writer of the Haunted Mansion. It's a different world, folks. And the Medea films have definitely done a decent chunk of bank, and that would appear to suggest in their meetings that there is warranty validity for another Doubtfire picture. Well, of course, now there won't be a Mrs. Doubtfire sequel. It would be lunacy to attempt it, um, or even really a remake. Why would you want to? I, I do not envy whatever comedian they get into those shoes, you know? It, there's other better stories to do. There's that, no that's reason true. to go back to this one. That's true. This one doesn't work. So at the very end of the film... Um, <laughs> he tells the uh, uh, he tells the court who have decided that he's crazy uh, and probably shouldn't see his children at all that he's addicted to his children. This is the other bit of we hate movies. I'm going to hand over to. It's, I, I plead insanity. I'm I'm just crazy about I'm my like, kids. You can stop there, sir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not we'll cra- take that as your defense. Yeah. Book it. He's like, I'm just. You know what, Your Honor? I'm just addicted. I'm addicted to my kids. Okay. I'm please stop talking, sir. Please I just stop love talking. my kids so much. I'm man. gonna have to extend this. I can't this. be away from them <laughs> okay, for more than two five years minutes, now, or else sir. I'll go crazy. It's two years now. I'll go sir. absolutely I kill crazy. Right, sir, bailiff, can we take him away? <laughs> Robin Take him Williams. down, bailiff. Blam, blam, blam. I, w- I kind of wish Harris Eulen was the judge. <laughs> like, Burned at the stake. The judge d- does do some like this kind of lifestyle. Oh sir. yeah, yes. he pulls like, the old lifestyle. And it's, yes. it's, it's so unearned because the movie is not about gender identity. The right. movie's about being a sick, demented con artist right. that doesn't believe in the judicial system. Apparently, and then he. 
in, in a, a tone which is similar to Sean in uh, Good Will Hunting. So it kind of fooled me the uh, time I, I, I saw it recently before I saw it again with you. Um, I, I thought, oh, that's actually quite heartfelt. Uh, he delivers a speech to Miranda about how, um, you know, it's, it's wrong that he sees his children with a social worker and that he, he must see them. He must see them. And you had a problem with this, didn't you? I did. Um, and it was because of... Despite everything that's gone on in this film, despite everything that he's gone through, despite all the things that he really ought to have learned um, about relating to his children and relating to his wife, his speech is entirely peppered with, but your honour, this is going to do terrible things to me. I need to see my children. I must be with my children. You can't take my children away from me. It's all about him. Never in that speech does he say, look how much good I have done for my children in the time that we've been together. Look what I can bring to this family. Look what support I can now offer. Look at all the things I have now learned to do. I can cook for them. I can clean for them. I can take care of them. I am a responsible human being. I have inadvertently learned how to be a father (coughs) by being this old woman. Exactly. It may be unorthodox, Your Honour, but I believe I now have the ability to cope with the the job which I should have been doing in the first place. I've learned. Me, 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 me. He has learned precisely jack shit. And then he he throws it all back in her face and goes, you let this happen to me. How dare you? Yeah. And she goes, yeah, I have been a prick. No, Miranda, you've been, you're in the right here. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, because he, he pulls her up on this, you know, you let that judge make that ruling and you never said a thing. Well, yes, for the last God knows how many months you have been lying to her. You have been encouraging her children to lie to her. And nobody ever credits Sally Field with her performance, both dramatic and comedic. When she finds out Daniel is doubtfire and she's wrestling with all kinds of betrayal and... Anger and surprise and disappointment and confusion and more anger. Like having to separate that Daniel has betrayed her, that Mrs. Doubtfire has betrayed her, that Mrs. Doubtfire never existed. It's an astonishing little performance here. But everyone's just so busy going, whoop, game's up. It's me. (gasps) Happy birthday. I'm sorry, Miranda. Uh, please don't talk to me. Aye. But I mean, it's it's not it's not that it's not great the way the judge is framed. That that's totally the wrong way to put this. It the courtroom setting and the discussion that he's had therein puts all the emphasis on the fact that he appears to be living what they call an inverted commas deviant lifestyle. The reason they don't want him to see his children without a support worker is because he spent the last three months wearing a dress. Because, oh my God, how terrible, how awful a parent would that possibly make you? No, no, he's a liar. He's a fraud. He decided in his infinite wisdom that the best way to try and solve this problem was to pretend to be somebody else. And that was a conscious choice. That, that wasn't a, a sort of a, a, a man who is clearly broken by the trauma of this divorce and therefore struggling with severe mental health difficulties and therefore requiring support and help. No, this is a man who thought, oh, what's the best way that I could go forward with this? This I know. doesn't end with him seeking therapy. My God. 
He does ask, to be fair, when Miranda first asks him for a divorce, he does say, could we go and see, like, a family therapist? And she says, no, it's it's got beyond that now. Ah, ah. but that was in favour of getting his family back together. Yes. To which it would basically be more about, like, from his point of view, that was about getting her to see how important it is to have a fourth child in the family. And to allow him to continue being him. A bad, irresponsible version of him that he didn't want to change. One that quit a high-profile voice acting job, doesn't appear to have an agent, doesn't appear to have a backup plan for what to do, says nasty things about her behind her back to their kids, which, by the way, my father did about my mother, sabotages her plans to get a nanny, ropes his brother and brother-in-law in on his crackpot scheme, then ropes your two older kids in when they find out. Imagine if you found out that almost everything in your life was a lie and it was all down to the one person you tried to extricate because they felt like a bad influence. And then they threw back in your face, how dare you take me to justice on this. So have you softened on any of that? I don't know. I don't... The the points that I made are still entirely valid. So, element of thing bad. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I I, do think the difficulty with that is that if you reframe all of that to make Daniel a more self-aware person, you remove the film. Yeah. The story no longer needs to take place. Yeah. The whole thing really should have been framed in a, in a way that he's kidding himself the whole way through and he's got this nagging doubt in the back of his mind. That's his conscience telling him he shouldn't be doing this. Mrs. Mm. Doubtfire. And at the end, he actually reveals who he is to his family and says, I can't, I can't lie to you guys anymore. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I mean, you can Instead, he gets rumbled, which suggests he was going to carry on with it as long as he possibly could. In fact, you know what? Put it the other way around. Have him start taking, like, cooking classes or something because he's trying to make the best of the the situation he's been given and, and improve himself as a parent. And then he finds out that Miranda's have it, uh, advertising for a housekeeper and the light bulb goes on and he thinks, ah, I could put these new skills to good use. Hmm. Do it that way around and it's a little bit less... This is all about fooling her into letting him back in the house. It becomes Ugh. about, I can... Mrs. Gaslight. Pre- precisely what we said about the, the court situation. Here's what I can do to support my children, but this is the only way that I can... Yeah, if it came down to, I've got all of these skills, I actually showed them to Miranda, but she's so angry at me, she won't let me. Mm. There's some validity to that story. Yeah, yeah. that, that she, he can only improve his relationship with her by coming back at it as another person. They also needed to make Miranda more literal, real-world unreasonable. But she very rarely is, aside from just the, the idea of going from kids every day mm. to to not at all. There maybe needed to be, like, just one scene where she was like, I just needed to... Hurt. Like, something where she admits, I wanted to hurt you, yeah. to suggest that, yeah, actually, Miranda ain't all just a sensible mm. grown-up. But the way... Give us something to work with, people. Absolutely. The way it's set up, we know she's infuriated and frustrated because she's been trying to fix this for 14 years. But also that she's always the bad guy in this scenario. Mm. He always comes at it from the point of view of, I'm a good guy, kid, just trying to have a good time with my other kids, who are friends to me, the kid... And you're the 
nanny from Muppet Babies comes in and tells us to tidy up. So, anyway. Mr. Sprinkles is a nice touch. It's a little thing, but at the end, the old mailman who comes in is like, ah, Mrs. Doubtfire. He was the old guy working with the dinosaurs. It's a little touch to show we didn't send this old guy out into the street and relieve him of his job. He's still got a job in TV. He's just been repositioned into a place which is actually better for him, much like Mrs. Doubtfire herself. Mm, yeah. So that element I do kind of like. And obviously Mrs. Doubtfire as an entertainer, way better than Mr. Sprinkles back when they had him in that time slot. I can can also see Mrs. Doubtfire doing interviews on Conan O'Brien in character. Mm, Yes. You know? She is very reminiscent of Mrs. Mrs. Merton. (laughs) (laughs) And Dame Edna. Yes. Hmm. But what first, Abby, attracted you to the millionaire Paul Daniels? And being in character as Doubtfire forces Daniel to rein himself in, so he's not like what he was doing when he was playing with the dinosaurs. He has more self-control as her. She's an aspect of himself that's actually positive in the end. Possibly my less empathetic response to it in 2014 was partly influenced by the fact that I didn't go through a family breakup at that age and may have found it a little bit difficult to emotionally connect with people who had with that situation. That's fair. To go back to what we said at the beginning, it kind of doesn't matter how we personally feel about this. This film is beloved and we don't want to take away from your enjoyment of it. Uh, we can't pronounce it bullshit in any meaningful way. It it makes people feel warm and fuzzy, especially those that miss Robin Williams and his enormous mixed bag of film roles, and that's the way it should be. But one thing I will absolutely give the film Mrs. Doubtfire, no matter how irritating it is as a comedy or how wrong-headed its sensibilities are as a drama or how unsympathetic they make sensible people out to be and how slavishly in love with all of Robin Williams' shtick the film is, it didn't pull its punches on divorce. That's not nothing. Especially in 1993 when more and more families were breaking up, it would have been nauseating to see Miranda relent and get back together with Daniel, either for the benefit of the children or worse if they made it, that her big problem was always trying to be too grown up. And the message, despite its irresponsible man-child hero, is sometimes troubled relationships work out and sometimes they don't. Both scenarios occur naturally. And while we as children might find the idea of our parents splitting up to be abhorrent, terrifying and unthinkable, if it does happen we should not blame ourselves. And it's not the end of all things. It's the closing of one door and the opening of another. And on the other side of that door is a new version of your old life. Not many family movies have the guts to say, sometimes love fades. Sometimes a marriage cannot be saved and should not be saved. Sometimes you can go from wanting to spend your entire life with a person to just wanting to be away from them so that you can have a different life. It's very difficult to get your head around that as a child and as an adult. But the children caught in the middle are in almost every case the best thing to come from that ultimately broken relationship. 
and I applaud this disastrous, quotable, syrupy, geographically ignorant, frequently insensitive, retrospectively creepy, occasionally, yes, admittedly genuinely hilarious, drive-by footing, influential and super successful movie for making that the core message. Oh, my dear Katie. You know, some parents, when they're angry, they get along much better when they don't live together. They don't fight all the time and they can become better people and much better mummies and daddies for you. And sometimes they get back together. And sometimes they don't, dear. And if they don't, don't blame yourself. Just because they don't love each other anymore doesn't mean that they don't love you. Now, there are all sorts of different families, Katie. Some families have one mommy, some families have one daddy or, or two families. And some children live with their uncle or aunt, some live with their grandparents, or some children live with foster parents. And some live in separate homes and separate neighborhoods in different areas of the country, and they may not see each other for days, weeks, months, or even years at a time. But if there's love, dear, those are the ties that bind. And you'll have a family in your heart forever. All my love to you, Poppet. You're going to be all right. Bye-bye.